Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, state lawmakers are concerned about investors scooping up water rights as supplies keep dwindling. Anytime you come into a, a, a place that you're not from, people are curious at best and skeptical and concerned at worst. More on that. Plus, we'll hear about a bill that recently passed in the legislature that would allow for composting human remains. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado is making national headlines this week for a groundbreaking media partnership that will keep dozens of newspapers in local hands. The Colorado Sun has partnered with a new nonprofit called the National Trust for Local News to purchase Colorado Community Media, which operates 24 weekly and monthly newspapers serving eight front-range counties in and around Denver. Some of these newspapers have been around for more than 100 years. For Colorado Sun editor Larry Rickman, the future looks a whole lot brighter. None of us as citizens, as readers, have to accept the inevitability of hedge funds uh, taking over newspapers and destroying them and reducing them and whatnot, that we all have a role and we can, we can make a difference. We'll have more on what this new partnership, the Colorado News Conservancy, means for the future of local journalism. That's coming up later in the show. Colorado's legislative session comes to a close at the end of this month. That gives lawmakers just a few more weeks to work through hundreds of proposed bills. Still under consideration, everything from free menstrual products for students to local control of gun laws, special license plates, to first responder use of chemical restraints. Last year, the session was interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and several measures that were intended for the 2020 session had to be postponed until this year. Among those was a bill that would allow the composting of human bodies after death. This would be another option, alongside more traditional methods such as cremation and burial. Longtime listeners may remember that we spoke with the bill's sponsor, State Representative Brianna Titone, last year, shortly after she introduced the bill. Well, it took another year, but it finally passed in the legislature two weeks ago. Governor Jared Polis has already said he'll sign the bill, which would make Colorado the second state to legalize human composting after Washington in 2019. Colorado Edition's Henry Zimmerman recently spoke with Representative Titone about what its passage means and how composting human remains could work in practice. She started by explaining how she became passionate about the bill. Kind of a little bit about how my past sort of factors into it. I'm a, I'm a scientist by trade. I'm a geochemist. And I also volunteer with a group called NecroSearch International. We search for dead people. So dead people are not strangers to me in that volunteer work. So when some lobbyists here in Colorado were approached by the company who has patents on the machinery to do this kind of work, 
they were looking for a sponsor for a bill. And because of that past, they said, hey, you know, you're not uncomfortable with dead people. <laughs> Would you be willing to run this bill? And I said, well, yeah, I think this is a really interesting concept because I don't really like the burial and cremation ideas. You you mentioned something interesting there, and that's this company trying to find a sponsor and that talking about dead bodies is kind of like a hard thing for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. I'm curious what kind of support you got for the bill in the legislature. How did people kind of talk about it? One of the ways that I like to approach difficult topics like this is through humor because it kind of disarms a lot of the the difficult aspects of the topic. So that's how we were able to talk to our members about it. Although, you know, some people were still against the bill at the end. We didn't have a unanimous vote in the House, but there was a unanimous vote in the Senate. I think that there's some people just really latching on to the idea that it's against some people's religions to want to do this. But the bill doesn't force anybody to do anything. It's a choice that people have. If people want to do that, and a lot of people that I've talked to said they did, then let's let them do it. I think that this is a business opportunity. We'll be able to create some jobs here, as well as bring in a new business to, to the state, which I think is great. Well, you mentioned jobs and the business side of this. Can you kind of walk us through what human composting is like? You know, you mentioned the business that has a patent. Explain that side of things. Well, the way that this works is that there's this pod. It's about six or seven feet long and about four feet high. It's a cylinder. What they do is they lay down a, a bed of wood chips, alfalfa, straw. They put the body on top with some water and some additional material on top of the body. And then I think they may put in a little bit of extra bacteria and fungus that help work on eating the body up, basically. And then the cylinder goes into a chamber in the wall, sort of like what you would have in a mausoleum. And that containment really helps to get the temperature of the process up. So natural bacteria, the additional things they put in there, the stuff that's on the materials all sort of just interact with the, the human body. And it just does what it's supposed to do. It actually eats the organic material that's there. The result after th- about 30 days is a very soft material that it's mixed up inside that pod and then sifted out for any materials that aren't organic. So if you have a prosthetic or something like that, that can be sifted out. And then what you're left with is a soil that resembles pretty closely what you would buy in a store if you were to buy like an organic soil. I'm not sure exactly how this side of like even cremation works, but once you get to that point in the process, does the family then reclaim that material or does that material go elsewhere for a different purpose? Yeah, the the result is about a cubic yard of soil. So it's quite a bit. I mean, compared to cremation, you would end up with like a liter or so of ash, but this would you end up with a cubic yard, a big amount of, of material. And that would go to the family and the family can use it for plants around the house. Or, uh, you know, we've looked into other ways of, of having those remains be put onto public forest land, uh, especially land that may have been impacted by fire to help restoration to restore the, the organic material to the soil. You know, if people want to do that with their loved one. I mean, you could spread those around and you wouldn't even know it was there. It would just blend in with the plants and 
everything around and it just returned back to the earth. How popular do you think this could be in Colorado? Cremation right now is 70, over 73% of people choose cremation. So I think that people are choosing cremation because they, they don't like burial. And I think that there are a lot of those people who have opted away from burial to an alternative may be looking for another alternative. And this may be that. And from the conversations I've had with people, it's, it's a very intriguing topic. And a lot of people will say, well, I can't wait to sign up for that. I think it's going to be quite popular here. And I think it's because of the Colorado way of life. It's really people are here because of the mountains, because of the environment around us, the rivers and streams and plants. And that's what draws people here. And they feel like they want to make sure they're leaving a lasting legacy to the environment behind them. I think I think there'll be a lot of people that will adopt it. Brianna Titone is the state house representative for Colorado's 27th district. Representative Titone, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today. Last year, Colorado lawmakers pointed a finger at what they saw as a growing threat, speculative investments in water rights. Since then, a state work group has been examining the issue. The process has brought up some thorny questions about the entire system the Western U.S. uses to divvy up scarce water supplies. Heather Sackett from Aspen Journalism and KUNC's Luke Runyon have more. Melting snow and flowing irrigation ditches means spring has finally arrived at the base of Grand Mesa in western Colorado. We're along the banks of the alfalfa ditch with the team behind Conscience Bay, a Colorado-based investment firm. So they can turn water back into the main stem of the creek here, or they can let it, let it run on down this way. That's company president Eli Feldman. The water from this ditch is spread across an arid valley to grow hay and pasture for grazing cattle. This is Hart's Basin Ranch. The company owns it and a contractor runs it. And they own the rights to much of the water in this ditch, too. Conscience Bay bought the ranch in 2017, and its intentions have been under scrutiny ever since. From local officials and other ranchers. Anytime you come into a, a, a place that you're not from, people are curious at best and skeptical and concerned at worst. Feldman's company has been accused of speculation, of buying this ranch just for its senior water rights and hoarding them for profit, an accusation he says is false. Because just like every other major water user in the state, the water here is being put to use and not simply accruing value. We're growing grass and feeding it to cows and, uh, and trying to improve the ground, improve the soil health, and make a business out of it. But investments like these are being scrutinized by a state-sanctioned work group made up of some of the most prominent water thinkers in Colorado. State lawmakers have made the issue a top priority. They want to prevent out-of-state interests, motivated by increasingly dry conditions, from buying up water rights. Colorado State Engineer Kevin Ryan co-leads the group. I think it's a valid concern because they do see unusual parties, large parties that Again, aren't the typical parties purchasing those water rights? So that's their concern. Like many Western states, Colorado considers the right to use water as private property that can be bought and sold and moved from farms to fast-growing cities. The state already has laws to make sure it's put to use right away. That means discussions about reining in speculation come down to intent. Do we want to protect against 
certain types of intent. And then how do we determine that? So is someone purchasing water rights to grow hay? Or are they hatching a nefarious plot to act as the middleman and sell the rights off to the big city nearby? There aren't speculation police roaming the state and breaking up these investments, right? That's Alex Funk with the Colorado Water Conservation Board. He's also a member of the work group. Funk says they've struggled to come up with answers to even some basic questions. Like, what is the definition of speculation? It's one thing to point at something and say, oh, that's probably being, that's probably speculative. Another to actually put the legal definition on it. Farmers and ranchers see both a threat and opportunity in the rise of the private water investor. On the one hand, they worry about their communities if all their neighbors sell. But when it's their turn to receive a check for their water rights, they don't want regulators to restrict who can purchase those rights, even a private investor. Carlisle Courier is a rancher in Molina, Colorado, and the president of the Colorado Farm Bureau. Because if if the government can tell them they can't buy a farm and and farm it, well, they can tell me that, too. (laughs) I don't want them telling me that, so... Back at Hart's Basin Ranch, investor Eli Feldman says he's not the enemy. His operation isn't the mom-and-pop homestead ranch of the Old West. It's the investor-owned, employee-operated, risk-taking ranch of the New West. Is, Is speculation just another word for investment? But it's got a negative connotation to it because it's somebody that's not from here? Okay, well, do you not want to have investment in rural Colorado? Is that what we're after? He sees all the anxiety about speculation as a reflection of something much deeper. Water supply throughout the West is shrinking, and deciding how best to deal with the growing shortages still comes with more questions than answers. I'm Luke Runyon. And I'm Heather Sackett. This story is part of ongoing coverage of Water in the West, produced by KUNC and Aspen Journalism and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In recent years, it's become increasingly common for major corporations and hedge funds to purchase hyperlocal community newspapers. In Colorado, a groundbreaking local news partnership announced Monday is bucking that trend. The Colorado Sun, which is a Denver-based digital news outlet and one of our regular media partners on this show, has teamed up with a nonprofit called the National Trust for Local News to purchase 24 front-range local newspapers. They're calling the partnership the Colorado News Conservancy. For more about this and what it means for the future of local news, we're joined by Colorado Sun editor Larry Rickman and Elizabeth Hansen Shapiro, CEO and co-founder of the National Trust for Local News. Thanks so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Larry, I'll start with you before we get into the Colorado News Conservancy. Can you tell us briefly how the Colorado Sun was formed and why it was formed? So there was a, a group of us who were uh, at the Denver Post uh, three years ago. And um, as you and, and your listeners may know, the Denver Post you know, has seen a lot of uh, really deep cuts over the years. Once upon a time, it had more than 300 people in its newsroom. Three years ago, it was down to 100 people in the newsroom. The hedge fund, Alden Global Capital, that owns it, ordered us to make uh, cuts of another one-third of the newsroom. And we just decided, a group of us, very senior people in the newsroom, decided that there had to be a better way. 
that journalism wasn't failing, but the old business model is failing and that there just had to be a better way to support uh, local journalism and do local journalism. So we uh, we left the Denver Post and we created uh, the Colorado Sun. We made it a, a public benefit corporation uh, to really uh, wear on our sleeves and weave into our very DNA our commitment uh, to public service. Well, let's talk about this new uh, deal, because as I mentioned earlier, the Colorado Sun has partnered with the National Trust for Local News nonprofit in order to buy 24 local Colorado newspapers. Elizabeth, I understand this is the first major purchase that the trust has made. What is the goal with this new Colorado partnership? Our mission at the trust is to keep local news in local hands. So our goal for this acquisition in Colorado was to work with the incredible network of funders and journalists to really ensure the long-term future of these local papers, to ensure that they don't get sold to an out-of-state hedge fund, that they don't get sold to a national conglomerate, that they're really, you know, the community resources for the long-term that, that they should be in order to fulfill their public service mission. It's very unique, I think, for a national nonprofit to partner with local media companies in this way. What do you see as the benefits of a national local partnership? So, you know, at, at the national level, um, there's been so much um, interest, philanthropic interest, um, you know, folks like the American Journalism Project launching in the last couple of years to really channel national philanthropy and really build a national movement for local news. And, you know, institutions like the Knight Foundation have made incredible investments um, in technology, um, you know, in business models to really figure out kind of at a national level what those best practices are. are. But, you know, every community is different. Every community ecosystem um, is different. And so it's really important, we believe, to be, um, you know, to really move the needle on ownership and business models to have, um, you know, national resources, but also that on the ground, you know, local expertise local community connections, local funders, because ultimately that's where the service happens. It happens, you know, in cities and towns across the country. So that national local mix, we feel it's really important for for long-term sustainability. Larry, I'll I'll turn back to you for this. The 24 newspapers we're talking about were previously owned by a local company, Colorado Community Media. My understanding is that this partnership came together after the owner-publishers reached out because they were getting ready to retire. What did they say? You know, they have worked really hard. Jerry and Ann Healy have just done a fantastic job of uh, putting together this, this group of community newspapers, some of them more than 150 years old. And, um, you know, it has been a lot of work. It's no surprise to anybody that it takes a, a lot of effort to put out to newspapers and to, to run a business. And they're approaching retirement age. And they, you know, they looked ahead and realized that, you know, there are challenges with any business uh, that, you know, businesses have to evolve in order to, to grow and to thrive. And um, they just wanted to make sure that these papers that they'd worked so hard to build and maintain ended up in local hands and, and to, to put them into the hands of somebody with vision and energy to, to take them on to the, next, uh, to the next chapter. Can you talk about the significance of these papers staying in local hands as opposed to being purchased by some of these big uh, hedge funds as, as seems to become unfortunately more common? So, you know, unfortunately, I've seen firsthand what happens when hedge funds uh, buy newspapers. You know, they they slash the staff, they sell off the parts, uh, you know, the, and 
it's journalists who suffer first because they lose their jobs, but it's really communities that suffer. It's democracy that suffers because when journalists go away, there's nobody left really to fill those roles. And these, these newspapers, these 24 newspapers that, uh, that we've just acquired with the National Trust, provide hyper-local coverage that no one else provides. So if these journalists went away, if these newspapers went away, there's nobody left to cover the city councils and nobody left to cover the county commissions and the school boards. So it's, it's so important, you know, really for our democracy and for these communities to maintain this kind of robust hyper-local coverage. And I'll, I'll put this one to either or both of you, Elizabeth or Larry. What changes might we expect to see at these papers now that they are under new ownership? What's amazing about this coalition of people who've come together to support um, the future of Colorado community media is that we bring experience in all kinds of different innovations in local media. So um, the Colorado Sun with their amazing membership model, um, you know, I've done a bunch of work in newsletters. Our managing director, Lillian Ruiz, knows the kind of marketing space really well. And so, you know, what we're really looking to do is help the CCM um, business and audience grow through what we know are best practices that have grown up and taken root um, in other communities across the country. So this is really like, you know, it's a moment of exciting expansion and it's a moment of kind of re-envisioning what the, what this, what this local service can look like um, in this incredible new media environment that we're all in. And I would say, if I may jump in that, that we don't uh, plan to reinvent the wheel uh, at, at these newspapers. They're doing a great job of covering their communities. These are profitable newspapers that are serving their communities well. Our mission number one for us, as we've been joking, is don't break anything. You know, let's, let's keep them doing the great work that they're doing. The communities know them. They know their communities. Let's build on that and let's find ways to, uh, to make improvements where we can. But in these early days, Really, our, our main job is to come in and, for me, be a good journalist, take notes, listen, observe, you know, find out where the opportunities are, where the challenges are. I think that the Colorado Sun, one of the things that we're excited about is, you know, we have a lot of experience uh, in uh, digital news. And uh, we think we can bring some of that, those learnings and that experience with us to, uh, to these 24 newspapers. Are there plans to move any of them or all of them away from a traditional, you know, subscription-based funding model? I, well, I, I don't think at the moment we're, we're planning any radical changes uh, one way or the other. As I said, um, you know, the company's really in good shape today. But, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, in general across the country, print has been in decline. And while we hope that's not the case, and we hope that print will remain around forever and we'll work hard to produce the best print products we can, we also can't pretend that those trends aren't occurring nationally. So we have to plan for the future that might uh, you know, see less print. And um, again, we would be thrilled if, uh, if print remains economically viable forever. And uh, we'll, we'll hope for that. But in the meantime, we're gonna do everything we can to uh, create the, the most robust uh, digital you know, um, websites uh, that we can. Well, lastly, I was just curious, how do you see the future for outlets, you know, larger outlets like the Denver Post and the Daily Camera and others that are in the hands of corporate hedge fund owners? We at the Trust have been having discussions with journalists in some of those newsrooms, with activists in some of these communities that really want to reclaim their local papers and to replant them into 
community-based nonprofit forms. And we think there's lots of interesting opportunity and conversation at the federal legislative level that would make some of that easier because ultimately, you know, you need, you need community support and you need incentives um, for these papers to get replanted into different forms. So from our perspective, some of the most exciting work to be done is really figuring out how to partner um, with local communities and legislators and investors to figure out, you know, what that new community model looks like and how we can make it grow across the country. You know, I think one of the messages to me is that none of us as, as citizens, as readers, uh, have to accept the inevitability of hedge funds uh, taking over newspapers and destroying them and, and reducing them and whatnot, that we all have a role, you know, in, and we can, we can make a difference. We can find new ways, we can support uh, local journalism, and we can support efforts like this to keep journalism in local hands. Journalism is too important to be left in the hands of hedge funds. And we're so proud to work with the National Trust and other supporters to, uh, to blaze a trail and find a new way to keep these newspapers robust, serving their communities and in local hands. Larry Rickman is the editor of The Colorado Sun. Elizabeth Hansen Shapiro is the CEO and co-founder of the National Trust for Local News. Thank you both so much for joining us and all the best with this new venture. Thank you, Erin. Thank you so much. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear why some schools are experiencing outbreaks of COVID-19. And as NPR celebrates 50 years on the air, we talk with the author of a new book about the women who helped shape the sound and the future of broadcast journalism. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.